Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with Karen Murphy of Facing History and Ourselves. We are taking the long view in a time of lightning rod milestones. And we've also launched Experience Poetry at OnBeing.org as a further place for solace and sanity. Short form and deep dives, get tethered, be recharged. And, as always, you'll find a shorter and beautifully produced version of this hour's conversation wherever you found the On Being podcast. Hi, Krista. Hi, Karen. It's so good to meet you. (laughs) It's so good to meet you. (laughs) Um, So, Zach, do you you need us to get levels? Or that doesn't really work here, does it, with this new situation? Now I can't hear you. I see your mouth moving. We don't need to do. Okay. Okay. All right. By the way, there's a... The window back here behind me is right covering your face. Yeah. So if you're trying to get just exactly where you're sitting, if you're trying to get my attention, do that. <laughs> um, okay. All right. Um, Karen, I'm, I'm so... Welcome. Welcome to On Being. Thank you. <laughs> I actually feel I feel like saying that today because I'm sitting in the studio and I can't remember last time I did something in the wow, studio. Wow, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, so normally I have recently I've been in my basement um, in a makeshift, quite cozy now, but makeshift <laughs> um, setup. Um, and I kind of feel I feel like. This is so huge, what we're going to talk about. And I, I have all these notes in front of me, but I also trust that um, that we'll go to all the places we need to go. Yeah, and I have notes on my floor and my notebook, and yes, we'll get there. <laughs> okay. Um, so so you, you were born in Michigan, and you lived in Flint, Michigan. Did you, did you grow up in Flint, Michigan, or is that no. just a while? No. It was just a while. I was Mm -hmm. born in Marquette, Michigan, because Mm -hmm. my father was in school. And then he got a job in the car foundries. And so we moved south to Flint and Mm -hmm. lived there a couple of years. And then he got a job in Springfield, Illinois, the capital. Mm -hmm. And we moved to Springfield. Um, And so that's also when I started elementary school. Okay. So, so, you know, this question I... I, I often ask about the spiritual background of someone's childhood. Is what I've what I've learned is that what that question gets at, um, in addition to uh, things we w- we might more immediately think of when we think of a religious or spiritual background, um, it also gets at really deep questions that get planted in us. Um, and that we often, like I've, what I find is that when people start talking about that, you actually get at roots of questions that somebody may have started to follow. Maybe really like the questions they followed the rest of their lives, um, mm-hmm. which is so interesting that that's not a place of answers. It's certainly, it's a place of questions as much as a place of answers. So, I, and you know, when I look at your work, um, you are following 
the deepest of questions. Like, mm-hmm. what is the story of us? How do we learn it? How do we tell it? How does that lodge in us and shape how we live? So, like, I wonder if you think about the background of your life, your childhood, how those questions got lodged in you. Yes. So, um, when it comes to faith, we went to church, and as a child, I would have thought that was um, not really understood how to differentiate denominations. You know, it was church. Um, But I was aware of the fact, and we went on holidays, so not regular church going, but I was surrounded by relatives who who went to church all the time and saw it as part of community and tradition and history and so on. And what's interesting about your question that because I also um, know you start conversations this way, I've been thinking about it, and it's wonderful how it also um, inspires in yourself, inspired in me, all of these connections. Mm -hmm. And so one of them is um, the way that while uh, formal church-going wasn't an important part of my life, it's still not, Um, my Mom and stepdad now go to church, the virtual church. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean. The way we live now, yeah. (laughs) um, And she also is like the church gardener. And Mm. that to me, there's Mm. a whole story there. There's a book there. Right. Um, So it's also, and it's a church that is very committed to social justice. Mm -hmm. And so I know that's a driver. So is community. Um, but I also know uh, from my mom, who to whom I'm very close, and, and so this is also part of this story, um, my mom prays every night on her knees. Hmm. And um, I remember my stepfather, I went to the University of Minnesota for graduate school, and my stepfather drove me with all my stuff in a U-Haul, and somehow we were talking about my mom, and he said... Um, all she's been through, my mom lost my little sister, Sally Ann, her mm. mother when she was 14. And he said, and she gets down on her knees and she prays. And so there is this thing of faith. Mm. So that that's one thing that I know has been there. And then an, another component is my stepmother, very involved in her church, sings in her church, finds community in her church. Um, I'm very close to um, children who are no longer children, who (laughs) have gone through their bat mitzvahs, and that ritual is very important to me to be part of that. And then um, there's the natural world. Mm -hmm. And my mother is both a scientist and she's someone who is deeply, deeply connected to the natural world. And I know, for example, after my sister died, my mom has talked about how it was through, in some ways, astronomy to live in this period of such pain and impermanence Hmm. and to find in the stars and the planets and the night sky something that's been there a whole lot longer than you ever have and Hmm. ever will be. Hmm. So I think all of those things, and then, you know, so I— 
I think questions about, you know, how people live and cope and celebrate and ritualize the stories they tell um, are all related to your question. And also, um, yeah, how you live with people who have different values than you, you know? Yeah. And, and that, that's just fine. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I will say you wrote a little something about, about your personal background and you, you mentioned, um, I mean, it sounds like you have a relationship with both of your parents now, but you went through a you, you wrote rather ugly custody battle. Yes. And it doesn't strike me, it doesn't seem to me completely accidental that you have ended up being a person who faces divides, right? I mean, that story of us is often a contested story. I think that's story. totally right. <laughs> yep, that's totally right. And and I'm not, look, I'm not close to my father. I wouldn't want to misrepresent mm-hmm. that. But I, um, my... Yeah, my parents had a really terrible custody battle that at the age of 14, which should harken back to my mom, right, because we repeat patterns, um, at the age of 14. And so it meant for me leaving my mom and my little brother, Patrick, and living with my dad. And because I was a pretty resilient into school kind of kid, I just like, you know, got into it and succeeded in all those ways that, like, I don't know what how you measure that. Yeah, um, yeah. But then later, um, not only was I very focused on wanting to have a real relationship with my mother, but I felt um, cheated of that time. Now I should say my stepmother um, took amazing care of me. I lived also with my step-grandmother, who I thought of as my grandmother. But I moved back to Springfield for a few months before grad school. And to me, that was a real reclamation, not of uh, being 14, Mm. but Mm -hmm. of the stuff of everyday life. You know, my Mm. brother was a senior in high school, just being around. Mm. Um, So, yes, exactly. I'm sure that—and I'm a middle child, you know, so I'm sure that— (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we've done that. We got that. We'll check that. <laughs> um, uh, I have my own version of that story. So yeah. one, someday when we meet, I'll tell you why I become a good listener. Um, so, all right. So, um, you know, I'll t- I, I, when I, as I'm reading through, um, as I'm thinking about uh, the perspective you have to offer on um, – on our country, um, at this particular moment in time, moment with a capital M, which may last yes. for a century, um, I think about how we did a production trip to Northern Ireland in 2016. Mm. It was, um, I believe, it was in the summer. So it was, it was when the election year had become that election year, but it was, you know, it was before the election. Um, and it had started to become clear to me that whoever won, the work ahead of us was clear, and it was finding our way back to each other, right? Yes. Our fellow citizens, our neighbors who had become strangers. Um, and, you know, when I was growing up in the 1960s and 70s, I would read about a place like Northern Ireland in the news or learn about it in school as one of those places in the world where people just hated each other and sometimes killed each other 
and they would just that they were like doomed to do it forever, right? Yes. And in 2016, kind of mid 2016, I'm in Belfast. I'm at Corimila, which mm-hmm. which actually is one of the communities that over decades kind of helped stitch that place into a new reality. Um, I realized I was in this place where people had been on the other side of sectarianism and come out and not a perfect place, but they never took peace for granted for a second. They lived it. And um, I suddenly, it was like my vision shifted and I realized that our country is now the one that Mm -hmm. is spiraling into a dangerous and and in, in, in many ways violent sectarianism. And these people are now our teachers. Yes, about how to go beyond that. Um, and so I think of you as someone who perhaps has been walking through the world with this kind of perspective on our country, on your own country, for some time. Yes, and Corey Mila is actually our partner in Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. and I've been working there since um, in Northern Ireland since two thousand three, and. Yeah, look, I think the United States is a a country in transition, which would be language that um, American policymakers would use for developing countries or countries in the wake of war, mass violence. But I think that the moment we're in and and have been in for for, um, quite some time is um, a real period of liminality, of betwixt and between. And... We are standing in the middle of a bridge and need to decide uh, how we're going to walk across it together and in what direction and and all the work that will require. And so I think, you know, Northern Ireland um, is, uh, I think South Africa, which I know we'll talk about, is um, a a very robust and rich example, um, especially for Americans, but you're point is so important that let's have the humility and the generosity to step back and learn from these places that have had the courage to look at themselves and look at where they've been and um, try to forge a new path with something that resembles together. And uh they're exceptional models for us. And look, I think that right now we should be taking these stories and these examples and these places and filling our pockets and our lungs and our hearts and our minds with them mm-hmm. and and learning deeply. Mm-hmm. I, I guess, you know, one thing that people in this country, I think an American... Instinct. I mean, so you know, speaking of South Africa very specifically, um, I very recently I or somebody I was interviewing quoted cited um, Nelson Mandela, I think, for something, mm-hmm. and someone someone wrote someone responded, and I and I hear and I hear this a lot. Well, who are the South Africans to teach us anything? That country is still very troubled, <laughs> and. And that's true. And the mm-hmm. South Africans would be the mm-hmm. first to say that's true. But it, it feels to me like that response, there's so many ways that we have, there's so many, so many kind of characters of our national personality 
that we also have to see and work with to do <laughs> what you said, right? To get on that That's exactly bridge. right. <laughs> because, you know, you could say, you could look at our country from the outside and say, look at this civil rights movement that they take so seriously and celebrate. Um, uh, you know, 60 years ago, six, fifth, you know, 60, 70 years ago it started, and still black people are killed by police all the time, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, so much of what didn't, what where we didn't get, or, you know, well, you, you know this, like, you know, it, it, so, so there's this, there's this way we think about ourselves, there's also a very short, uh, view of time. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I'm curious, like, how would you... I, now, I'm imagining countries are made of people, right? And yes. people struggle. We all struggle uh, kind of naturally to face hard and ugly things about ourselves and just to face our mistakes. Um, and I'm curious about, do, what do countries have, like, different personality quirks in terms of how they face history? And then how does, how do you think, how does America... Um, fit into that like what what is it that we have to work with kind of almost as the pre-work mm-hmm. so yes we all have personality quirks and um and then certainly within countries right there's there's differences to be sure i know you know that um but for example in northern ireland when i started working there it, the the belfast agreement um is very much an end of war agreement and in many ways it doesn't um, there's no plan for peace. If you were to hold it up against, say, um, what happened in South Africa, you would recognize that with Northern Ireland, there's almost a, it's like they said, look, we're, we're going to agree to disagree. Hmm. You believe what you believe, and I'll believe what I believe, and one day in the future, we'll decide what that means. Hmm. And there are all these components of it that haven't been realized. And, and I should say that, that that's not just on the Northern Irish. Um, there are so many actors involved, the, um, the Republic of Ireland, the U.S., the U.K., the European Union, um, that also grew tired of that conflict and couldn't wait themselves to um, be rid of the troubles. And so this points to a, something that we have to consider, which is, Moving away from division, from sectarianism, from violence, from conflict is multi-generational work. Mm -hmm. And you have to be both patient and persistent. And so um, looking at Northern Ireland in, you know, 98 and saying, oh, finally, well, no, Or even, you know what I mean? Right. And so the Northern Irish, when I started working with educators there, one of the things I found um, was they're, they're masters of sussing out um, who you are. So they ask a few questions. One is, what's your name? And your right. name right. reveals a whole lot of things. And I had mm-hmm. a colleague for a long time named Sean, mm-hmm. which um, reads as Catholic Nationalist Republican, but he's actually Protestant, which always led to, like, amazing conversations. Right. The, the next thing is, where did you go to school? Well, mm-hmm. look, in a place that's got 94% of the schools are around there yeah. are segregated by identity. That tells you something really fast. Then, third question, where do you live? In a place with about 80% single identity housing, 
tells you something else. And then if you can't get what you need from those three questions, you say, what sports teams do you like? <laughs> so one of the things I noticed about the Northern Irish, which um, we, you know we talked about, and actually poetry was a great way I got to this, is um, educators for a very long time learned to manage the conflict the same way the larger society did, which is by silence. Hmm. You don't talk about something that's not safe. You know, right. it's whatever you say, say nothing. And that feels really resonant right now in totally. our country. Yeah. Yep. You don't want to be misunderstood. You don't want to step in the wrong place. Some of it has to do with being polite. Some of it, and then in schools, the way it manifests was, um, we want to keep kids safe. Therefore, we will not do this. Yeah. The other way is humor. Great way to deflect things. You tell a joke, you make things easy. Another strategy, being polite. Hmm. You can be so polite. And actually, um, Seamus Heaney's poem, Whatever You Say, Say Nothing, is a beautiful uh, lexicon of the Northern Irish strategies for these things we're talking about. Um, and then another method is sectarianism. And so I noticed that as I began to work with educators about how they first, as adults, confronted the troubles and its legacies before they even imagined teaching it, we had to help them identify exactly what you're asking. What are your strategies? How mm -hmm. have you learned them? Look at them and pay attention to them. Let's, you know, don't shame yourself, but let, let's recognize that we've learned how to do this. And one of the ways that educators would then respond was this sort of bland neutrality. I'll talk about the Republicans this day, and then the Unionists this day. And what I saw was that no moral judgments were made. Kids were just like, well, wait, is anything good or bad in this history? Because it seems like just one day people did this, the next day they did that. And, you know, that, that doesn't really get at the challenges of the, the, the past. Now, South Africa, very different approach. Um, again, cultural, also related to the way the conflict ended. You know, there was a negotiated settlement, power sharing. Right. And if you were to compare Northern Ireland and South Africa, I'd say South Africa, there's pretty profound agreement that not only is apartheid and then before it's segregation and slavery, the primary cr crimes, but the primary victims are black South Africans. Right. In Northern Ireland, there's no agreement and the primary victims are the primary perpetrators. Mm -hmm. What what do you say to people who say, well, South Africa is an example for us. They still have so many problems. Or, or right? How how do you how do you how how does this Yeah, how do you respond to that? I think South Africa in particular, I mean what's interesting to me is in um the 90s when the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission became known um, to Americans, and look, I'm not saying all Americans, but Americans who were leaning in a direction about thinking about these questions, it was really interesting to see how attracted people were to this idea, uh, you know. Of truth and reconciliation. Of truth and reconciliation, yeah, yeah. yeah. and how much it inspired. So, yeah, when people say that to me, I mean, what's interesting is the difference in the past several years. So I remember, you know, 
20 years ago, talking about the United States and transition and divide society and get whatever, rolled eyes. And then now it's sort of like, eh, you know, mm-hmm. people. So I think there's a difference in terms of uh, Americans are more willing to acknowledge the fact that we live in a divided society, that we um, have histories, but particularly history around slavery and its legacy as Jim Crow, race relations we haven't wrestled with, that um, we are deeply, deeply divided. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think there's any agreement about what you want to do with that. But what I do think there is, and why this is actually, for me, a hopeful moment, is when you begin to have recognition, um, not only is there opportunity, but there's opportunity in transition, which we can talk about in a minute. But when people say, look at South Africa or whatever, I often point to the things they did that we haven't done. And also stories of people who are doing that work every day. And I mean, my experience in some of the conversations I have with people is that they're pretty inspired and surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it is, it's actually really stunning. And again, I hadn't, I hadn't, I mean, I've taken this in, I'm so aware of how shaped we are by history and by a much longer history than I think Americans think think about. It's just not in us. You know, it's like the, the frontier. It's yes. like you're only moving forward. But I, it's only in thinking about talking to you that I start to really internalize how history, overt references to history and overt references to our divisions around history have just come absolutely to the surface on every side yes. of our divisions. So, of course, it's um, there are monuments and names, right, that are uh, that are contested, mm-hmm. that are that come from history, and there's this sense of kind of recovering chapters of, of our history that have been underplayed or that we never learned, um, or never learned in school anyway. And then even, you know, make America great again is also mm-hmm. an appeal to history or to mm-hmm. an understanding of history. I, I wonder if that has surprised you or if maybe you expected this, given the kind of larger context of how you've been, what you've been doing these last years. Well, I think that um, it, it, it's interesting to see the changes in this country and the way that we have used, for example, being a historical, and and you mentioned the Western myth and and the idea of reinvention and how you don't cloak yourself in the past because you're moving forward and how that's been so bound up in our identity. And at the same time, we have these things, these dates, these people, these, you know, that are that are seemingly so important to what it means to be an American, and we go through these debates um, almost every generation. It feels um, what about it, who we are. Mm-hmm. What do you think of specifically when you think of that? About the debates, or about yeah, the, like the subjects of the debates in different generations or in ours. Well, you know, like I think about, for example, um, in. 
when I was at the University of Minnesota, there was a decision that there was going to be a required multicultural curriculum mm -hmm. in the early 1990s for American studies. And that was, do you remember um, President Clinton's inaugural address in 1993, I guess, January 93, when he talked about fears of balkanization? Yeah, balkanization. Right? Yeah. Reaching over to the former Yugoslavia that was in the middle of a deadly war. Yeah. And there was this period during that time where American race relations were right there. You know, Cornell West, Hen you know, Henry mm -hmm. Louis Gates Jr., mm -hmm. Beverly Daniel Tatum, tons of books, ethnic studies. It felt like a real moment. And with that was also um, people saying, oh, wait a minute. No, the canon is Whitman and Emerson and, you know, right. so there were cultural wars, but there was also what seemed to be this time of people saying um, what it means to be American is more expansive and complex and more voices need to be not just integrated, but have, mm -hmm. you know, a, a prominence. And so, so I remember that period very clearly because I remember teaching then. And um, then in the 2000s, it was almost like that was a blip. Hmm. That it, Not that it didn't matter, but the prominence for yeah. that period. Um, and then, you know, Beverly Daniel Tatum is an excellent example. I, about I, don't, the, I don't know Beverly Daniel Tatum. She writes... Um, beautifully about adolescent development and race relations. And one of her books is called Why Do All the Black Kids Sit Together in the Cafeteria? Right, right. Okay, I know that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and she wrote this book about a conversations about race. And it's, so it's right there in the 90s. And it was in 2017 that she redid um, a forward and then an expanded version on the book, which to me shows also this gap that happened mm -hmm. where um, we start conversations in this country, we sort of get to the edge, <laughs> yeah, and then they become very particular among groups of people, I think, but they don't get integrated um, as part of something we're really willing to wrestle with. Do you have a... Do you have a guess about what that is about us? Why we do why we operate that way? Very ahistorical, I think intolerant at times of complexity. Mm -hmm. um, probably conflict avoidant. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean there's I think there's a real um, and we're so you know, if you when you were talking about the civil rights movement, if we were to really say, let's look at U.S. history, let's just hold it up for a minute. It was from 1965 with the Voting Rights Act to 2013 with the Shelby decision that we really had something close to a democracy. Hmm. That's hmm. it. That's hmm. it. Hmm. And if we used, I think that we've got to get to a place where the language we use, the words we use, are more precise. When I think about South Africa, it's very common to have a conversation with a young person or an adult, and you will hear history, human rights, apartheid, 
democracy, constitution, those words are part of their vocabulary. And we don't use that language. And I think that part of what could be for us a period of learning and transition is an effort to think about what is the shared vocabulary we need? What are the words? How do we describe our past so that we don't say, you know, at the founding of this country, it was a democracy. It was not. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, what do you do? Democracy minus? Not a helpful way to think about something. Mm-hmm. And then you look at this period between 2013 and 2020, um, and you say, well, we've been living without full voting rights protections, which is a primary element of democracy, which isn't abstract. It's so tangible. And um, and then you can point to things like other civil rights commitments, like integrated schools. Yeah, yeah. And most of our schools have resegregated. So right. I think that, you know, yeah. something I'm thinking of, if if I think about I, I also feel like, and I, I think I'm, I think I'm, in saying this, I'm naming something that a lot of people are feeling right now. That like, there has been this great, you know. I think about in nineteen seven, seven, yeah, nineteen seventy six. I was sixteen, mm-hmm. and it was the, the bicentennial, right? It was a big deal. People yes. remember this, yes. right? Two hundredth anniversary of our country, and if, and I and I think about that, and if I think about, you know, there was this overarching theme. That we have always been moving forward, right? Yes. That this is a land of progress. And we don't always get everything right, but we're moving more right at all times. And I think that that is deep, deep. It's been deep in in the history of learning schools and deep in our bones and especially about, you know, what America is. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, if that's a reason that when when something has bubbled up that where there is just where where it is a terrible contradiction between our view of ourselves and, you know, and and what is actually true or, or true for many people, um, it gets put in a box or in mm-hmm. a corner because mm-hmm. it, because it can be there on the side, but it doesn't cohere with the large story of us that we wanted to tell. And if I think about, you know, what you, you know, right now, again, there's this, there's this there's this kind of shocked awakening mm-hmm. to chapters of our own history. You know, I grew up in Oklahoma really not knowing about the Tulsa Massacre of 1921, yes. never learning, and all kinds of things. And I would also say, you know, on, on another place on, our, on the spectrum of our country, the idea of make America great again also is very much about, you know, that, we, that we've that we always been a certain way, mm-hmm. always moving forward, always opportunity for everybody to move up. And whether that's been true or not, that's how people have internalized it. Yes, we have a linear progressive narrative that is ascending. And um, so we use it to explain not just material progress— your kids are better than you were, and so on, which shifted a while ago. And so that's also a a contradiction, as you say, that makes people say, hmm, this isn't like it should be. Right. It's not what it should be. It isn't what it should be. And then there's the contradiction. The way we've treated these things, yes, Mm -hmm. are are aberrations. So Mm -hmm. 
Jim Crow, rather than this huge long period, is an aberration. Lynching, rather than something fairly regular, is an aberration. When we talk about racial violence, we treat it as an aberration. And so I think that, you know, part of what you're talking about, it's like I can see it in my head. It's the, the challenge of a narrative where you do... And this isn't everybody, right? Because I, I was talking to a colleague the other day, um, and we were talking about critical consciousness and how, you know, there are young people in classrooms for whom there is not a contradiction because they haven't experienced the promise. Uh-huh. And so uh-huh. it, it, they're not they're not suddenly saying to themselves, oh, wait, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. It, right. it hasn't been. And so I think that, but it's interesting that you point to 1976. That's when Facing History was founded. Oh, that's yeah. When, that's when schools are being um, desegregated in the United States, right? It took that long for a lot of them. Yeah. Think about busing in Boston. Yeah. That's the Soweto protests. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think the other thing that Americans do is remove themselves from the world and not see that we're part of also these reverberations, you know, that um, that some of these movements that are happening simultaneously um not just here. People are talking to each other. They're sharing ideas, good and bad. But um, that, that that was a real turning point in that period you identified, interestingly enough, was also a pretty expansive one in terms of, of education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I felt that. I'm not sure that. <laughs> I'm not sure that had made its way to my small town in Oklahoma. But yeah. Um, so so I I want to talk about. What it means, you know, there's this, there's this, uh, this adage, right? Um, he who, who said this? He who does not know history is doomed to repeat mm-hmm. it. Who said that? Satiana. Okay. But I've been feeling for a long time that that's not true. It, it doesn't go far enough. And <laughs> it, you know, because just knowing, just knowing history, I mean, I, I, it feels to me implicit in the title of your project, which is Facing History and Facing Ourselves. Facing History and Ourselves, yes. Right. Facing History and Ourselves um, is actually pointing at not just learning history or teaching it, which is really important, but how do you then, how do you, how, do, how does that become shaping history? Yes. And I think that I have a beautiful quote by Desmond Tutu that um, speaks to, I I think, part of what you're you're talking about. Facing history in ourselves recognizes that, yeah, the work of looking at the past is insufficient if you don't also look at yourself. And you have to actually look at yourself first. There's a bit of a dance where facing history begins with self, and that's because we focus on adolescents who are in this extraordinary period of change and transformation, not unlike the one we're living through. Um, And 
So it's questions about how do I see myself and how do other people see me and how does that affect the decisions I make and so on. So that by the time they're looking at history, they have this identity, membership, belonging sort of lens and they're making connections, not just between self and society or self and other events, but when you look at history, you are asking questions about what people did why they did it, why they didn't do it, why they failed to act, or, or why some people stand up in extraordinary ways. And what does that mean for you? And so like if I were to travel around, which I do, and see facing history classes, if I were to walk into a history class and say, wow, that is the greatest, I don't know what, Holocaust education class I've ever heard. Right. But if I never once heard kids say, what about, and then name something that was happening today or make a connection to themselves, then yeah, it's not facing history in ourselves. I think this is a, it's a marriage of head and heart. It's the deep work that humanities does, which is take something so particular and allow you to make universal connections mm -hmm. and ask those questions you started with, which is, this history reveals so much about me, and it happened 60 years ago, you know, or, or, or whatever the moment is that you're looking at. And so I agree with you. It's insufficient to just know the facts of the past. Well, the, I mean, and the truth is, I mean, we're really living through this in very vivid ways right now in our world. I mean... You know, the Holocaust, right? Never again, mm -hmm, never mm -hmm, again. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it keeps happening. You That's know, right. versions of it, variations on it keep happening. Um, and we stand back and despair and watch. Um, and so somehow knowing, knowing that it happened didn't get us, didn't get us all the way. I think, you know, you. so I think we are in sort of... Uh, three periods. Uh, it, it's a period of transition that's national in the United States. It's happening within other countries that right now are trying to figure out where they're going to go. I mean, it, whether it's countries that are moving away from democracy or countries that are becoming more isolationists or nationalists or dealing with their own divisions. But then there's this other question about what kind of world do we want to live in together? And yeah. those post-World War II commitments to memory, to prevention, to justice, to human rights, we have largely abandoned. And I think that a question for us as Americans as we grapple with our own past and its legacies, as we restore our democracy, as we build relationships with each other and rebuild them where they didn't, you know, where they existed and that we've lost trust, we also have to reimagine our place in the world and in relationship to other places and decide where we stand when it comes to these commitments because some of them are extraordinary and important and and importantly were made in a time of crisis they weren't made when everything was great and peaceful and flush right and, right. and they so, were made when we had humanity had seen 
the worst of what it was capable. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in 1994, um, when the Rwandan genocide took place and, you know, South Africa simultaneously voting for the first time and then Srebrenica just a few years later and you had the apologies from the UN and attention in particular to the failure to act and Samantha Powers' work and others. And there was, in the early 2000s, around Darfur in particular, Mm -hmm. um, the rumblings of an anti-genocide movement that looked like it was going to be a bit of an awakening. Um, And, yeah, where is it? But again, you know... How can we have an anti-genocide movement if we don't really deeply understand how genocide becomes possible in culture after culture after culture, right? To me, that mm-hmm, points back mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. facing history and ourselves. And ourselves is the human condition, right? Yes. It's not just yes. ours. I mean, I, I think it's so interesting that you're using this language of the United States being being in a transition and that that being a a, a, a formal that's a that's a that's a technical phrase. Um, there's a piece you wrote about transitional justice, um, mm-hmm. reconstruction after violence, how teachers and schools can deal with the legacy of the past. And and I guess I should say here, uh, you know, I I I think we are we live in a very violent country. <laughs> that, yes. And and I'm not the only I'm not the, I'm that's not an original insight of mine. But I feel like that's another thing we don't. We don't let in, even now, right? We still want to, like, there's this violence over here and that violence over there. But, um, but you know, my colleague Lucas Johnson, who's, who you've met, who's the head of our mm-hmm. social healing initiatives, you know, he, just, he says we have been living with a degree of low-level violence that we have just tolerated and, and become used to. Yes. Um, but in some ways, and, and not even just what's happening in 2020, not even our kind of vitriolic divides, like we have been a country at war. Um, so anyway, so you wrote, um, this is what you wrote about transitional justice. Late, late August 1994, the Irish Republican Army announced a ceasefire after 25 years of, arm, of armed conflict. A few days later, Michael Longley's poem... I don't know. We had Michael Longley on the show for election election weekend, two thousand sixteen, wow. um, and he recited this poem, "Ceasefire." Um, a few days later, you wrote Michael Longley's poem, "Ceasefire," was published in the Irish Times. The final lines: "I get down on my knees and do what must be done, and kiss Achilles' hand, the killer of my son." Mm. Those lines poignantly capturing the challenging, for many, unimaginable path that lay ahead. And then you pose these questions, Karen. How do you live in peace after years of violence? What does it look like? What does peace sound like? How do you learn to trust the other? How is confidence restored within communities among people who feel betrayed by their own? Must the violent past be faced in order to secure peace or coexistence or forgiveness? And what role, if any, must there be for acknowledgement, responsibility, blame, punishment, or justice? When I read that, I thought, those are precisely the questions before our country Yes, right now. I think you're right. And your earlier point about violence is such an important one because, again, we treat it as an aberration. But I think 
One of the things I learned early about Northern Ireland compared to Bosnia when I would talk to people about how they called it a low-grade fever mm-hmm. could exist for so long, was the answer was, we were rich. Compared to Bosnia, we were rich. And I think that, that um, there's a part of that for the United States, too, that our general wealth, obviously not uniformly shared, but our general wealth has prevented us from being fully on our knees. And um, I, I, you know, that's not where we should be in order to address these issues. I think that, you know, with in Northern Ireland, um, in 2006 and in June, I did this five-day seminar with educators, and they were. It was cross-communal. They came from different places, different experiences. It was going to be the first time that together, they through facing history and ourselves, um, dug into their history. But first, we started with a case study: Holocaust and human behavior as a way to create a window in a mirror and to begin to move out. And I asked them as a closing activity to go home um, and create toolboxes that were with found objects um, that represented the tools of transitional justice. And it should just have meaning to them. So they all come back. And they included things like a mirror because you have to look at yourself, (laughs) like a candle, because you have to have hope, like a flashlight so that you can see your way, Mm -hmm. like a book because you need knowledge, Um, a journal because you need to reflect and you also need to write history. Um, But one of the things that was so moving to me is to a person, they included an adhesive tape, (laughs) glue, (laughs) sewing kit, and it was because if we do this work we need to do, we will sever our relationship. And so we had to talk about the fact that how much of a relationship is it? If there's no trust, if you don't have a shared past, if you don't have a shared future, and they, like South Africans— really took an affirmative step in the direction of the unknown in part for their children mm-hmm. because they don't want them to have the life they had. And I think that Americans of our age need to ask ourselves not just the kind of present and future we want for ourselves, mm-hmm. But, oh, I do not want our kids to be having not just the same conversations every 20 years, but I want them to enjoy peace and stability and um, security and democracy and freedom and all of those things that we have not fully enjoyed Um, And in order to get there, I think we should use every tool in that toolbox. Yeah, and and even just not live the way we're living now. Yes. With I mean, I mean, all of those things, but so much anger and Mm -hmm. demonization on every side that that we're so 
that 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 others, all kinds of others, have become intolerable to us, and it's a terrible way to live. I think, and if I could just say one thing, yeah. we have to do is restore truth, <laughs> and yeah. we also have to. The basis of democracy is relationships, and trust is the glue. What is the glue? Trust. Uh huh. So we've got to restore it. So let's talk about how to do that, like mm-hmm. what you know about how to do that. I do want to ask you this question before we go farther. Um, why do people so, – so is Facing History in Ourselves an American, a U.S.-based organization? It's headquartered in the U.S., and uh-huh. we have offices in um, London and also in Canada, and then we have partnerships around the world. And those uh-huh. partnerships, including South Africa and Northern Ireland, are with – people in country who have like a civil society organization or an NGO. Mm -hmm. And so we're partnering with people. We're not, you know, doing the helicoptering in and bringing our thing. Right. So, so people, so you, you're, you're a U.S. based, but essentially global organization and, and they invite because, but you have these skill sets and curricula and um, tools and, and people in different places partner with you to bring that into the tip to, to be with them as they as they work with the education system. I bet that's right. Okay. And a lot of evidence of success. So I mean facing history has been studied by us and other people, um, a, including randomized controlled trials okay. and, and so on. But it, also one of the things you point to that's interesting is that people saw our name and our work mm-hmm. <laughs> and thought we need that. Right. Also facing <laughs> ourselves. <laughs> You know, this is just an aside, but yesterday, again, as I was getting ready to interview you, I was um, I, I was introduced to the work of a physician, uh, Rangan Chatterjee, who's in the, mm. in the UK. And he was talking about—so so I feel like something that's so interesting uh, to observe about the moment we live in, which, if you can step back from everything that feels so catastrophic about it, is there is a—there's a holistic mindset kind of arising— I yes. feel across disciplines, and medicine is such a great example of that um, because medicine is is a place that divided us up, divided mm-hmm. every organ and our brain from our heart and our you know our emotions from our thoughts and our bodies, and now we understand that all those things are just wildly connected. And he was you know so that so the new model of medicine is not that um, you know that we you treat the symptoms. Um, but that you look for root causes and inflammation. Yes. And he said something about, he said, when we diagnose a chronic illness, that is a that that has resulted from inflammation that has been building and building and building for a very long time. And I felt like that's such a good that's description <laughs> of our civic life. That's it. That's it. And I think that, look, one of the things that I was thinking about and when I was thinking of talking to you is facing history is very much um, based in a, an idea of prevention. But um, that's both antithetical, not just to the way Americans think, but to the way I, people think. And mm-hmm. so I think that, you know, another th- um, opening um, in terms of our maybe creative and moral consciousness is this idea of how do we prevent things before they get to whatever that two place is 
Um, but there, and I think actually the healthcare model is a very good one because we have changed our way of thinking of health from it's just about the doctor to including things like exercise and sleep. Right, or and, just right? about dysfunction, right? That exactly. the only thing you work with is dysfunction. Now they're trying to work with it, health. Right. Mm-hmm. And so how do you create a healthy society? Yeah. And how do you create a healthy democracy? And how do you create healthy race relations? And so I, we sort of have to do three things at once. Mm-hmm. Deal with what's in front of us. Aspire to the kinds of tools that help us reckon with both the restoration of our democracy and issues of redress and acknowledgement and accountability, and we need to work on prevention. And we can do those things. I mean, I think this is where I feel hopeful because both in history and in the examples of other countries, um, people have done this in crisis. They have. And... um, you know, it, it's it's um, not at all surprising, and I, I think I want to start here when, when I, I try to say, okay, let's talk a little bit about what you know and, and how we, um, and, I, and I really want that to be an expansive we, mm-hmm. um, Americans, can start. Because I think, you know, what you named, what's the world we want our children to inherit? Mm-hmm. That's not a partisan question, right? No. And and there are lots of things to talk about along that spectrum, but that question feels urgent. And um so anyway, so anyway, so when so of course you're talking about how to teach history and how to talk about history, but you also end up, I mean you, by you, I mean you and facing history in ourselves talking about how to talk about it. <laughs> right? So you you have this really excellent guide called Fostering Civil Discourse. Oh yeah. yeah. How how do we talk about issues that matter and um you know, it is it is such a it is such a a symptom um of of the strange and 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 fraught time we inhabit that you know the word civility is very controversial right i mean yes. right or even like the language of social healing is controversial um because there's because we're because everybody's on edge and if how can we possibly talk about healing when we when we don't know how to pick up justice right that mm-hmm. would be the kind i really like I like something in this guide. I like how you frame what we're talking about when we talk about s- civil discourse. Um, you said engaging in civil discourse means bringing your mind, heart, and conscience to reflective conversations on topics that matter in ways that allow you to extend your understanding in dialogue with others. It does not mean prioritizing politeness or comfort (laughs) over getting to the heart of the matter. Yes. Yes. And you know that guide, um, our partners in France created a French version, our partners in South Africa created a South African version, and that speaks to the need for precisely... Um, this kind of resource, but also before you can have the conversation, I mean, as you know, it's, you've got to figure out how to be in the room together yeah, and how to listen and how to stay there when you don't like what you're hearing. And I, I think that, um, 
we have found that resource was created before the election um, in 2016 and then updated and updated again. And I think that um, for all the challenges we're facing at this moment, one of the things that is inspiring is that when I look at the number of people who are downloading that resource yeah. or coming to our webinars yeah. or you know listening to you, and I think people are seeking help, they're seeking solutions, they're recognizing there's a problem, yeah. and that we've got to we've got to work on it. Yeah. I um, I sometimes feel like part of the problem too is that um, we. You know, you said we need to, we need to, we need, we have to have truth, and 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 I think we, um, for several generations, have equated truth with facts. Yes, and facts are not big enough. They don't, they don't get it. Truth, <laughs> they don't get it. How human beings feel, perceive, and mm-hmm. live truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that problem is that you know, like I really like the way you talk about history as the story of us, but we tend to. We tend to, you know, we have this notion of real time, right? Yes. And we and we rely on journalism and news to tell us the story of us. Um, and it doesn't tell it, it doesn't actually help in that larger enterprise um, that you're describing of like of how do we step back from that? I think it, it, this is where depth of what we would call a case study, I think, matters a lot. And your willingness to not superficially explore something, not just at, at, at the, the tip of the iceberg, but the iceberg itself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's part of what makes facing history in ourselves, I think, special, but it's also when we're able to have that kind of um, conversation with young people, you know, teachers with young people, but us with educators, it's one thing if you hold something up and look at, um, okay, let's say people who rescued during the Holocaust, and you, you just, you know, you talk about that. Profound, amazing. Look at the community of Le Chambon in France. How did they do it? And so on. It, it's more extraordinary when you understand it in the context of the place and the time and the other decisions that most people made. Right. And I think that this point about looking at history in its fullness and this point you make about truth, I was doing a online training of this uh, extraordinary for this extraordinary group of people who have created a peace education hub in Sarajevo. It's a dream that's taken decades. Mm. And they want facing history to be sort of the first practice they look at. So we met for several days over many hours, and our last session was on Monday. And I invited this uh, remarkable woman from Colombia who's leading um, our a partnership we're doing there. And she was describing to them why she chose facing history. And it's only now, now in Columbia that they're teaching past 1948. Hmm. And Hmm. she said, I don't want young people to see themselves as observers of history or as bystanders in history. 
I want them to see themselves as leading actors in history. And they can only do that in the fullness of a history that also looks at human behavior and decision-making and makes connections to themselves, but in ways where they are engaged in a way that acknowledges, is what Albert Camus, truth has many, there's one truth but has many faces. Mm. And that the pain, she said, the pain in that room when there are people whose families have been murdered, who have lost trust, not just in the state, but in everybody around them. Yeah. And pain is tattooed on their soul. They need to be able to feel safe enough to participate in a conversation that um, is going to begin to look at this thing they've inherited, this past that is not past. And again, like what you just said is so resonant for the United mm. States of America in the year 2020. And I think part of that, to, to just say about the fullness of history, I think the other part of this is also there, there are stories to be sure about racial violence and injustice and horror, truly horror. Um, and then there are stories about black communities raising their families and loving each other. Yeah. And so I think it's also how do we create a fullness so that the effort to understand the complexity of our past and the story of us includes truly the story of us that shows who we can be mm -hmm. and who we've been. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. Vincent Harding, yes. you know, yes. would rename that book Fostering Democratic Discourse. <laughs> <laughs> fostering fostering I, Oh, okay. Instead of fostering civil Don't discourse. Do you think he would? I yes. think about that all the time. Yes. That he would be like on the phone saying, um. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. <laughs> I mean, the truth is civil and civility are problematic. I just don't think we can get rid of them. I agree. We can't. We just have to fill them with all new connotations. We can't, I think you're right. It's not dispensable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, again, you know, I I feel like I've I feel like I I get so excited about the questions you raise and a lot of what you write, and um, I also think Americans really love answers, but mm -hmm. uh, I believe that questions have the force of action and they work on us, and they, I think, questions also help us move towards what you just said that what we can be, um, that is not yet. Um, so here's here's something you wrote from. This project you did on lynching, and it might seem like mm -hmm. a strange turn to turn to lynching when you just said something hopeful, but I'd actually like to just, you know, it seems to me that lynching, well, let me first read these questions. You, you've, it's called Facing the Past, Lynching and American Civic Memory, and these are questions that educators can ask. How does a history move from one that is national to one that is regional to one that ultimately becomes a burden of memory that rests solely on the victims and a few allies. Again, a question that describes something that has happened in this country that we don't even reflect on. And then you also ask, how do we understand 
what triggers a choice to not remember? Mm-hmm. I, I was very involved with, um, there was a collection of photography called Without Sanctuary. It, it, it still exists. It's mm-hmm. a book and um, a collection that has traveled and it was in New York City, very small gallery on the Upper East Side. And it's photographs of lynchings that include postcards. And those postcards are photographs of white people who have paid a photographer to come and take a, a picture of them standing, um, smiling, or next to the body of a, a black human being who has been murdered. Um, there are often children in these pictures. Often people are dressed up in their Sunday best. Um, and, uh, the head of the New York Historical Society said, this needs to be in a much bigger space. She created a major exhibition and and I helped with some of the programming. And one of the things we had were public conversations and the rules of the road for me were basically, um, they're free. And um, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about this history and the connections you make. And um, one of the things that I found was that, first of all, sometimes 60, 80 people came. We'd sit in a big circle. Um, It'd be mostly black and brown people. I always started by saying, my name's Karen Murphy. I'm a historian. Two white people would leave right away. Right away when I said, I'm not going to lecture. We're going to have a conversation. Huh. And um, so, okay. And then I would start out by having people in pairs introduce themselves and just share a thought. And then we would talk as a group. And patterns became clear really quickly that most of the white people who came knew the myths of lynching, um, that this is a Southern thing, that it happened in the dark of night, that it was only people who wore white sheets. And so part of this exhibition really demythologized and, and tr- you know, deeply troubled the, the way that they held on to what we were first talking about, which mm-hmm. is that this was an aberrant history. And most of the participants in these discussions who were black knew something of this history from a relative right. or from seeking out African-American studies classes or African-American history. And we would end up having really great discussions about how is it that something so public, I mean, these were postcards passed through the U.S. mail. Yeah, These were um, events that were advertised in the newspaper that were written about. Not only is repressed and became private, but people, whether they were ashamed or not, knew not to talk about it anymore. And so you have this gap where it not only doesn't exist in history, but if you want to seek it out in history, you don't look for U.S. history, you look for African-American history, which again points right. to, right, wh- why are you looking, what, how does that shift happen? Um, but then the burden of memory and its legacies and questions of commemoration go to this conversation too, which is, um, you know, do do Jewish people have to be the ones who remind us that the Holocaust matters? Right. Um, are, are black Americans responsible for making sure that slavery, the Middle Passage, and Jim Crow are taught? Yeah. If we're trying to get to a more holistic approach to 
not just history, but how we're going to live together, then there's this question and about— who we are, what and made who we us, are. what actually right. made us. That's right. right. That's right. And, you know, Facing History works with Helen Fine, who's a genocide scholar's concept, universe of obligation, which— Young people take that image, universe of obligation. To who am I obligated? To whom do I owe amends? And you think about um, how do you make that more inclusive? And what, what do you mean did, by that? What? So, if you start out by saying, you know what, the people to whom I'm obligated are my immediate family, closest friends, I and see. a handful of others. Yeah. Ver- right. Versus what we're talking about, which is that child is my child. This history is my history. The Holocaust is a universal history. Slavery is a universal history. I have a connection to it. It's not the property of someone else who um, has been historically marginalized or bears the burden of this to represent it. Yeah, it's not just the inheritance of the people who suffered the most. That's right. right. It's our inheritance, even if we didn't. It's our collective inheritance. Directly. That's right. Uh That's right. And so what do you do with that inheritance? And what is your responsibility to it? And um, including what does it mean to carry that responsibility of history? And, you know, Germany is actually a a very interesting example. I think you lived in Berlin, right? I did, yeah. I I try to not mention Germany in every interview. My producers are quite behind the glass. Making fun of me, I know. Um, but well, well, Germany's very interesting in many ways, and we don't have time to talk about it. But you know what I'm? I mean, Germany. I I sometimes hear people saying now that the Germans are the models of what it means to take a difficult history and actually ha- and actually have a shared collective responsibility for it. And I think that's true. But I was also there in the 1980s, and I know that. That that stretch of now seventy years, yes, has been so messy, yes, and it went through terrorist periods, yes, and that nobody remembers, like you know, generational terrorism, and um, and that what we're seeing now, which doesn't surprise me at all, is that where history was not taught in East Germany. And I spent a year at I spent a half a year at a university in East Germany, and they learned that fascism and the Holocaust were all about the capitalist West, mm-hmm. and that they it was not their inheritance, and it had nothing to do with Eastern Germans. And that's where you have these that you know the Alternative for Deutschland, the the new yeah the AFD the yeah. new movement that is what would would kind of roll back what looks like the progress West Germany has made is all from that is it, it's not only based there but that's where it has had its its foothold well you point to something really important we need to remember that this thing that we hope that we're striving for which is um, to actually imagine repair, reconstruction, accountability is not going to be in a straight line. Yeah. It's going to be messy. It's going to be multi-generational. I mean, what we should strive for is creating opportunities for learning, including from ourselves and other models, but creating a foundation so that the young people who are in high school now have 
firmer ground to stand upon. This is a marathon. Yeah. And we need to carry the baton a certain distance for them. Um, do you have trouble getting your curricula in American schools? No. It, well, I mean, it depends mm-hmm. on the on the place, right? So um, there are entire districts that um, use elements of facing history. Chicago Public Schools, for example, mm-hmm. uses a lot of facing history. But it also depends on the particular case study. You know, there are places where they might be teaching about Reconstruction or the Armenian Genocide mm-hmm. or about the Holocaust. So on the one hand, there's a subject matter piece. And then there's the fact that the U.S. is a highly decentralized system. Right, right. Um, which is very and different school than, district to school district. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And, and sometimes school to school. Yeah. And so, you know, there's big changes. But for sure, we've also seen um, the divisions. Uh, schools are microcosms of our society. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we've seen also. And it, the thing that's also so challenging about that is um, because of where we are right now as a country, you can say a word or a phrase or make an association and people think, oh, I know. Right, right. You're on the other <laughs> side. And I, Whatever, right. Yeah, and I just want to, I mean, I want to say I really experience both the approach that you take and the curricula that I've seen to work so hard to honor the integrity of human beings on every side, the struggles um, all around facing history and ourselves. <laughs> um, I, I think you're very... Um, I think what I what I hear coming out in you is also something that I've heard that there's this deep respect that you have, and this is how Padre Gotuma said it, <laughs> for the moral and intellectual capacity of young people. Yes. That they, if you treat them this way, are up to what you just described. Yes. Taking in a fuller sense of who we are, where we've been, and who we can be. We trust them. And I think we should trust them. You know, Facing History in part is created out of an experience that Facing History's founder had, which was growing up in Memphis, Tennessee, in Jim Crow, as a white young woman knowing this is not ethical and I'm getting an A in ethics. Like there's something wrong when we can't talk about what's happening outside our doors. Mm -hmm. And she knew that when she was then a middle school teacher in Boston, that she had to create opportunities for young people to talk not just about, as you were saying, the facts or this sort of sterile thing in the past, but in order to be able to navigate the world they inherited and what was happening outside their doors, which was really volatile race relations, Mm -hmm. violence Mm -hmm. in Boston. In Boston, yeah that they didn't have the vocabulary, the ability to talk about these things, and that we hamstring these kids when we don't trust them with the truth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I had the same experience not learning about, just like you didn't learn about Tulsa, I didn't learn about what happened in Springfield, Illinois. And you, we need to trust young people Mm-hmm. developmentally appropriate 
ways, right? So age-wise. But with the truth of the world around them, because they are living in it and need to make decisions, and they're also in relationship with others. And if you don't understand what's happened, how can you treat people from other communities with respect? How can you understand how you're seen and perceived? Um, So Facing History very much believes that young people are moral philosophers. And, you know, young people, adolescents are immersed in questions of judgment and justice and fairness. And we spend so much time. And passion around that. And passion. And we spend so much time telling them, quieting that voice. Right. And then we spend, it feels like our adulthood, trying to find it again. Right. Whereas what Facing History, I think, is doing is yeah. saying, let's help you to amplify that moral voice, that civic voice, mm-hmm. and not base it on opinion, but inform judgment. And, and so that young people are able to fully represent themselves. Um, I, this language of being upstanders and not bystanders. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, I guess, a term coined by Samantha, Samantha Power. Power, the diplomat, and but Facing History popularized it, and it's now been recognized as an official word in the English language. Yes. Um, so I want you to say something about that. It feels to me like such a um, beautiful counterpoint to um, the notion of the silent majority. Um, which is a term I first heard in Germany. It's a term that's that's in American life again. I hear it being used in different ways, actually. I mean, I kind of want to think that there's also a silent majority. It just doesn't get all the attention mm-hmm. of those of us who don't want to live this way. I, re- I really do believe that. Yeah, yeah. And it's just kind of hidden and less loud than everyone else. Um but I think that term of becoming upstanders and not bystanders is really useful. It is useful. And it's something that young people um, in facing history classes, they get really interested in bystander behavior and what animates it and why people don't take action. And that, believe me, they make connections to themselves, like those moments when they think someone else will do it or I'm afraid or, you know, the, the textbook reasons why people don't act. And then when we not only um, provide examples of upstanders, and these aren't like the big heroic people, but everyday people who choose to make a difference in their communities or or they stand up when someone says something racist and they say, hey, you can't say that. Yeah. You know, or upstanding has many, um, there are many opportunities to stand up and speak out. And then we invite young people. We don't tell them what it is that they're going to do. You know, they need to identify what matters in their communities and and in their country and in the world. But that idea of upstanding is a powerful lever also for the creation of self-efficacy, right? Because when you see other people stand up who look like you, think like you, pray like you, you can see yourself. And then the other thing, when you see people from other communities do it and you say, aha, look, I didn't know that. And Mm, I think mm -hmm. that upstanding also 
can, even when you have the word in your vocabulary, you can begin to ask yourself, what does it mean for me? Where do I stand up? Where do I speak up? I think it also feels important to me to just underscore that that you're teaching this and kind of giving this this language, which is a tool and work of the imagination as well as action. But in the context of, again, facing history and ourselves and this starting with yourself. So it's right. a self-reflective upstanding because there's – there's a very there's a lot of reactive you know what you could so there's bystanding but we also live in a world of really reactive lashing out you know mm-hmm. of just reactivity just sheer total reactivity um you know if i look at this at this um this curriculum you have that's downloadable about how do we talk about issues that matter, mm-hmm. you know, number one is start with yourself and you have reflection questions like, you know, who am I? What factors make up my identity? How is my identity shaped by power and privilege? What mm-hmm. topics do I find challenging to talk about? Mm-hmm. Why do I find these topics challenging? How might my perspective be different from those of my students and colleagues? So that that actually feels like a nuance that to make to to make a distinction between um reactivity and and upstanding. Yes. I think that's right. And I also think, you know, when it comes to young people and upstanding it's important for them to know historical moments when people stood up as well because they need right. to be able to not say that's how things were. Right. So when you learn about Ida B. Wells, for example, or if you learn about people like John Lewis, you begin to say, wait a minute, if people were saying what Frederick Douglass said, (laughs) you know, how come other people didn't say that? Right. So it's also important to know about upstanders because they provide a window into the other paths we could take. Mm We've been we've been we've been talking a lot about um, you know awakening in terms of our racial history, um, and obviously that's front and center. And I'm talking to you from Minneapolis. Um, mm-hmm. It's also very you know very much a dynamic in our country, and you know as we move through this election season, but also certainly beyond it is chasms between white people and um, judgmentalism and um, conversations that like that really need to happen mm-hmm. within the white world um, and I don't know how do you how, how does how is that kind of on your on your radar I do think I think those conversations also need to be rooted in something I mean my experience is that um, you can quickly move from, uh, especially during a difficult period, into anecdote and misinformation. And, you know, if there aren't ways of rooting the conversation, whether it's around a text or a history or in response to something, um, I think this is where 
uh, as Americans hopefully begin to ponder what they can learn from other places. You know, you look at, for example, Northern Ireland and the use of story or poetry, for example, or the work of Damien Gorman, for example, where he collected people's stories from the Troubles and then used the sharing of their stories as a way to help people hear each other mm-hmm. and see each other. I, I think there's an element of that. I think that part of what you identify reminds me very much also of South Africa in that mm. it wasn't just white people and black people, right? There are divisions between white people. There are different factions. Um, so there's also how do you get to a shared future when you don't have a shared past? And I think that we need to um, work on a shared historical record. And there are many ways to do that. There could be historical commissions. There could be truth and reconciliation commissions. There could be conversations that are local that are around monuments and memorials. Mm -hmm. There could be efforts to think about rituals that we would like to adopt. You know, I mean, you look at, South Africa and um, Youth Day or the effort to look at something like peace building initiatives. You know, at Corimila, when you go to Bally Castle and, you know, you have a conversation or something, everyone has to eat their meals together. It doesn't matter how special you think you are. Everyone has (laughs) lunch and dinner at the same time. Right. And then someone stands up and says... I need five volunteers to work in the kitchen. And the volunteers come from the room. And part of the work of peace building is washing the dishes, right? Mm -hmm. So part of what's going to, I think, help us in terms of how we move forward isn't just those moments when we're talking about the hardest thing we could talk about. Right, right. But it's, it's not all about be, dialogue. No, yeah. we're going to be gardening together and painting houses and washing dishes. But the thing is, in a highly divided society, we've got to actually think about what are the mediums to create those opportunities mm-hmm. and that they have to be intentional. So we have to then, going back to what we were talking about, in order to understand that you might need to use peace building techniques, you actually have to think about yourself as a country that needs peace. So, (laughs) right, right? we need to, in order to learn these um, lessons uh, or to take some of these beautiful, though imperfect, models and try them out and try them on, We need to first say to ourselves, yeah, that's where we are. But I do think, you know, if you're trying to build trust with people to get to the place where you can have that conversation, Mm -hmm. you're probably going to need to wash a lot of dishes. And you know what? That's okay. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think that you need to see this other person and they need to see you in a way that you can be part of a shared enterprise Right. Before they trust you and you trust them with that terrible thing. You know, when, when you and I first started talking and you, we were talking about the background of your childhood and the, the rupture within your family. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then you talked about how as you, when you grew older and you were able to go back and spend time with your mother and you, you felt then that you'd been cheated of time with her, that you appreciated mm-hmm. the time, you appreciated the just being around her. Mm-hmm. I, 
you know, I feel like that's, it's a way I, I want our country to kind of come to that, right? Yes. And I hope it's in my lifetime. It's not going to be next year, but that we re, that we get to know each other and people across all these divisions and categories that don't utterly define us. Like they don't define our humanity, that we start to feel like we were cheated of time with each other and happy to just be around. I think that's right. And, you know, this is where I think cultural production, art and poetry and music. You know, I remember in Northern Ireland um, talking to a group of people and said, just tell me. I said, tell me one thing you agree on. And they said, Van Morrison. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay, fine. There, we should find some things that become um, the adhesive uh-huh. so that we are able to then look in the mirror. Um, you, you mentioned, um, you have mentioned that poet, that you, one of your teachers, one of your teachers, <gasps> um, as you were getting into this, into this work, um, used poetry and that there's that 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 you always that there are poems that you always hear in in his voice yes. and um you know just as i was preparing for this i happened to be reading again something that um was said at the dodge poetry festival that we went to um last year or the year before um the head of the dodge festival the Geraldine R dodge festival said um history teaches us And the daily news reminds us (laughs) how easily we forget what it means to be human. Probably no other art form is better than poetry at getting us directly inside another's mind, experience, perspective. The ability to imagine someone else's inner life is where compassion begins. That was Martin Farrowell. Mm. Um, I thought that was so amazing that he mentioned history, and I was just getting ready to speak to you about this. And I just (laughs) wondered, I, I asked you if you... If you had some poetry that you wanted to bring along. I do. And so Rudolph Bird was my professor at Carleton. He became my advisor. And then he became professor of African-American studies um, at Emory. And he passed a few years ago. And he had a profound effect on my life. And um, as as a person, as a student, as a reader, but he um, had this voice. Oh my goodness! He always wore a suit, and he was tall and elegant, and and he who would say, um, "Ms. Tippett," you know. So it was like very <laughs> yeah. formal. Anyway, so. Um, He introduced us to Robert Hayden, and Robert Hayden um, became also very important to me because he he writes about poetry and prose, and one of the things he talks about poetry doing is it captures the silence and the sounds, Mm -hmm. and that the thing that poetry does is capture a laugh or a sigh or a groan and that that moment of silence. And I think our history is replete with silences, so Mm -hmm. I think that, that that's... That too. So this is um, Robert Hayden's Frederick Douglass. And I, I have a, I write in journals. I have to use a computer, obviously, but I carry journals around with me all the time. And I always have this poem. When it is finally ours, this freedom, this liberty, this beautiful and terrible thing, needful to man as air, usable as earth, when it belongs at last to all, 
when it is truly instinct, brain matter, diastole, systole, reflex action, when it is finally won, when it is more than the gaudy mumbo-jumbo of politicians, this man, this Douglas, this former slave, this Negro beaten to his knees, exiled, visioning a world where none is lonely, none hunted, alien, this man, superb in love and logic, this man shall be remembered. Oh, not with statues' rhetoric, not with legends and poems and wreaths of bronze alone, but with the lives grown out of his life, the lives fleshing his dream of the beautiful, needful thing. Oh, that's wonderful. So when you were asking before about when I teach, sometimes I just start with poetry and you let people breathe and find a word or a phrase that means something to them. And sometimes I say, okay, we're going to go around the room with your word or phrase. And then they've created a poem together and something happens in that space, the molecules shift (laughs) and we can have different conversations. Mm. This is, do you want me to do another one? Sure. Okay, so this is one that now I think, well, I should say one thing that I think is really cool. I live in um, Southeast Soho in New York City, and um, there's so much painting everywhere now. And so I can walk around a corner, and there's Ida B. Wells. Mm. There's John Lewis. And it's like, wow. I mean, talk about really interesting, right, Mm -hmm. to see... What's happening? So, that, okay, so Seamus Heaney has him also become um, sort of more frequently cited. I think precisely because what he says here in the Curate Troy is resonant for us. Human beings suffer, they torture one another, they get hurt and get hard. No poem or play or song can fully right a wrong inflicted and endured. The innocent in jails beat on their bars together. A hunger striker's father stands in the graveyard dumb. The police widow in veils faints at the funeral home. History says don't hope on the side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. So hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that a further shore is reachable from here. Believe in miracle and cures and healing wells. Call miracle self-healing, the utter self-revealing, double take of feeling. If there's fire on the mountain or lightning and storm and a God speaks from the sky, that means someone is hearing the outcry and the birth cry of new life at its term. Oh, Karen. I um, I feel like we could talk for hours. I mean, I, I want to ask you if there's anything that just feels absolutely essential that I didn't ask you about or you didn't get to say. Um, I don't think so. One thing that I was going to, when you talked about uh, that quote about those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. Yeah. There's a Desmond Tutu piece that I, do you mind if I read this? No, just in case? no. Okay. So, so who, you, who was that? You said, you said it was. Um, George Santiana. Right. So those who, who 
don't know the past or doomed to repeat it or don't learn the past. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the forward to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission final report. Mm. Desmond Tutu. The other reason amnesia simply will not do is that the past refuses to lie down quietly. It has an uncanny habit of returning to haunt one. Those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it are the words emblazoned at the entrance to the museum in the former concentration camp of Dachau. They are the words we would do well to keep ever in mind. However painful the experience, the wounds of the past must not be allowed to fester. They must be opened. They must be cleansed. And balm must be poured on them so they can heal. This is not to be obsessed with the past. It is to take care that the past is properly dealt with for the sake of the future. And that's why I think we need to do it. Okay. Is that siren here or there? Is it with you? It's here somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Should we... Should we have it again? Yeah, Lily is Lily is speaking into the microphone. Oh wait, I, is that the? I still have a uh, siren behind me. I can't hear Lily. Oh, now I do. Oh. Okay. Yep. Yes. Can we yeah. wait? Do you have a minute? <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, are you in New York today, now? No, right now I'm in Litchfield, Connecticut. Oh, okay. Okay. I think it's We're died down. We're just here down. for a few days. Okay. All right. Um, um, should we ask her to read the Nelson Mandela again? Yeah, or Desmond Tutu, sorry. Okay. Could you read the Desmond Tutu? Yeah, just re- if you would just read that again. Yes. And there's one other thing I'm going to um, read for you. I'm looking at, you should see my handwriting. It's hideous. Okay. It can't be worse um, than mine. Uh, it, and anyway, um, the other reason amnesia simply will not do is that the past refuses to lie down quietly. It has an uncanny habit of returning to haunt one. Those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it are the words emblazoned at the entrance to the museum in the former concentration camp of Dachau. They are the words we would do well to keep ever in mind. However painful the experience, the wounds of the past must not be allowed to fester. They must be opened, they must be cleaned, and balm must be poured on them so they can heal. This is not to be obsessed with the past. It is to take care that the past is properly dealt with for the sake of the future. And just a um, a last question. Um, um, I'm just, I'm curious how all this work you've done, all these all these many human histories, human and national national histories that you've engaged, um, has that changed your sense of yourself as an American? Yes, in that. Um, I really know I'm an American (laughs) and I know, (laughs) I know it because, um, just like, you know, the experience people often have when you go into another community or place and you say, Mm -hmm. oh, Mm -hmm. I'm not like that, Mm -hmm. or I am like this. So I would say part of me, yes, I know deeply more about my Americanness 
because I've been in these other places. But I would say I also feel so connected to people in these other places and have learned how much we have in common, Mm -hmm. how much we have in common, both in terms of the challenges we face Mm -hmm. and also so interestingly in our hope for something different. Right. Well, I'm really, I'm so grateful for the work you do and and for this chance to talk to you, it's it's really wonderful and so hugely important. And um, yeah, I'm just really glad to know you're out there. And I'm so happy that you're talking to to our team, right? That you're you've become part of our work in a way. Yes, and um, we're going to host a big virtual global summit on these issues we've been talking about: repair, reconstruction, redress. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll be talking to your team because I want. Um, you to do a breakout session or great. something. Yeah, great. We'd love that. All right. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay, you too. Have a good day. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye.